0: Tonight we're going to start a teaching series called Signs. It's time to return. I'm going to go ahead and give you the, the sermon title because you're going to want to take notes and, and uh, that title is going to be important. You will see at the end. The title of this sermon is His Rehearsals. His Rehearsals. So go ahead and write that down. The, the subject matter of this teaching series is eschatology. Can everyone say Eschatology. Say it one more time, eschatology. Yeah, eschatology means things pertaining to the end. Okay, so it's a conversation about the end times. And I say that it's a conversation because most of this topic is difficult to nail down. And I believe that God intended it to be that way so that we would be alert, that we would be on our toes, that we would do everything within us to discern what's going on around us you know, over and over and over again in scripture, you hear Jesus say, whoever has ears, let him listen and let him understand. And there's a place in Mark 13 where he's actually talking about some end time stuff. And Mark, who was the writer of that book, he's, he's writing this stuff down, but then he inserts this parentheses right there um, after Jesus says something peculiar. And he says, let the reader understand. (laughs) It's almost like he knew that whoever's reading this will have to be atten- uh, paying attention to what's going on if they're going to understand what's taking place. So, the whole topic of end times is a mystery and it's one that will not be completely solved by human beings. Do you guys understand that? Please don't think that we're going to solve anything in this mysterious thing called eschatology because we're not. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 25, He says, You're not going to know the day or hour of my return. You're just not. He said, But. You can keep watch. Everybody say, keep watch. Watch. Come on, keep watch. watch. That phrase is gonna be very important as we get to the end of this sermon, but that's what Jesus said. He said, you can't know the day or the hour, but you can keep watch. Well, watch for what? When you think about this book, all over this book, all over this book, from Genesis to Revelation, there are clues, there are conversations about the day of the Lord, the final days, the day, the day that God is going to bring really the only existence that we've ever known to an end. And He is going to set things back in order. He is going to be um, bringing peace to the chaos according to His plans, according to His purposes. In fact, again, if you read this book, you really find that it is a narrative that is moving everything towards the end. It it just is. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but it is. It is a narrative. Everything in this book is moving towards the end, towards the reconciliation of all things, to bring case uh, peace to the chaos. I was thinking this week about the first introduction that I had to end times. You guys want to hear it? Want to hear it? It came about a month after I surrendered my life to the Lord. And I'll be honest, I didn't know anything. All I knew is that I was a miserable human being, and Jesus seemed to be what could bring peace to my chaos. Can I get an amen on that? So about a month after I had made the choice to follow Jesus, I was 19 years old, I began having these wild dreams, okay? These spiritual dreams. How many of you know what I'm talking about? These dreams that were so real when I would wake up, I was awake. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like seriously sober. One of the first dreams that I had, I was riding in the back of the truck with my best friend. His name was Andy. And in this dream, Andy and I were riding in, this back, in the back of this truck. We were laying down in the bed of the truck and we were just hanging out, being silly, like we always were. And all of a sudden, I caught a glimpse of this something bright up in the sky. And I was like, man, what is that? And I noticed that it was moving closer and closer and closer until finally it got close enough to where I saw that it was this huge square city coming down towards the earth. And it was freaking me out in the dream. Immediately, I panicked because I had this sense of knowing that Jesus was coming back. And I panicked because I knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And so I jumped out of the truck while it was moving, right? Because it's a dream. You can do that kind of stuff in a dream. And I take off running towards the direction that it seemed like this big, giant square city was going to touch the earth. And then you know how in dreams, scenes will change. Just scenes will change. So the scene changes, and I'm running up to this train stop. And there's a long line of people waiting to get on the train and Jesus was standing there at the door of the train and he was holding a clipboard and he was checking the list that he had in his hands and he was letting some people on he was turning some people away and I remember jumping into line to wait my turn when I got up to Jesus he looked at me and he looked at his clipboard And he looked back at me and said, no. He wasn't mean. He wasn't angry. If anything, he was sad. And I asked, why can't I not get on the train? Why Why can I not come? And he turned his clipboard around so that I could see it. And he showed me four words written right there beside my name. And I read those words and I began to cry. And he turned around, he got on the train, and he left me standing there. And immediately I was awake. I mean I was awake, right? So I went and found the the brand new NIV green bible that Melissa had just bought me for being saved, giving my life to Jesus. Not that I'd ever read it yet. It had barely been opened. But I went and I grabbed it. And I grabbed a a pen and I opened it up like this. And I wrote those four words in my Bible. And and, and the first three were sin areas in my life that needed serious attention. Okay? But the fourth word, I had never seen, or at least I didn't recall seeing it. Um... I certainly had never used it, and I wasn't even sure what it meant. And the word was trite. T-R-I-T-E. I literally had to look it up. Here's the definition of trite. Trite means lacking freshness. It means that something has become commonplace. It applies to a once effective phrase or idea that has been spoiled by long familiarity and its stress is being worn out by overuse so as to become dull and meaningless. And for many years, I thought this was a warning to me that I needed to stay free from those blatant sin areas in my life, and then I thought the word trite had to do with me just staying in the word and not letting the message of the cross become dull and meaningless. You guys would probably think the same thing, right? And so for those early years, that early season in my faith, that interpretation of that dream at the time helped me to stay motivated to grow in Christ because the feeling that I had in that dream when Jesus turned and walked away and left me Standing there, all along, I had, all alone, I've never, ever, in reality or in a dream, felt that much sorrow and regret. And I've experienced a lot of pain in my life, but I've never experienced something as horrible as that feeling that I had in that dream. And then you know what? I started learning (laughs) once I opened up that beautiful little green Bible that had my name so beautifully stamped on it. You know what I started learning when I started reading it? That Jesus is coming back again for those who belong to him. (laughs) Who knew? I didn't know. I started reading I'm like, hey. You know what else I learned? I learned that there is a list and anyone whose name is not on that list will be separated from God for all of eternity. It says it right there in Revelations, chapter 20, verse 15. It says it right there. And I read some more of Revelations in chapter 3 and then over in chapter 21. It says that the city of God <laughs> is going to come down and touch earth. What? That was in my dream. And then if you go on further in chapter 21, verse 16, it says that that city is literally shaped as a square, more particularly a a cube. I thought it was pretty cool. It's like, whoa. I didn't know all that. So I started reading that Bible and eventually I used that little green NIV Bible to preach when I was a youth pastor. And every time I opened it, I would see those four words. Every time. I'd see those four words. And you know what's cool? Along the way, I was able to scratch those first three off. Because of the way this book was changing me. But something told me, don't ever scratch out that fourth word. The word trite. That Bible, most of you remember that Bible started tearing apart, falling apart my last year as a youth pastor. It was seven years, right? <laughs> it was the number of completion, right? That Bible was done. And so I had to put it away. I couldn't use it anymore because literally it would fall out while I was, I was preaching. And I eventually lost it. I don't know if it was in a move or, or what, but I've lo- since lost that Bible. It's kind of sad. But my wife and my boys uh, bought me a new one. This one right here in 2008. And you can tell that this one's not <laughs> too further from being retired too. See that? Read it, study it, preach from it. But I hadn't thought of that dream in probably seven or eight years. But this week, God reminded me about the dream and about the four words. And I think the reason that he did is that. Listen to me close. The message of his return is a message that we have heard so much that it has become trite. Remember the definition of trite? Something that has become commonplace. Something that is lacking in freshness. Remember, it applies to a once effective phrase or idea, but spoiled from long familiarity. Remember, it, it applies, it, it stresses being worn out by overuse to the point where it becomes dull and meaningless. Meaningless. Jesus is coming soon, brother. Jesus is coming back. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. How many of y'all remember that? (laughs) You remember that? You believed it, didn't you? (laughs) she's like, I did. (laughs) Jesus, our groom, is coming back for a pure and spotless bride. Let's be honest, we've heard it our whole life. And the church has been hearing it for 2,000 years. You know, there's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, or hope delayed makes the heart grow faint. How many of you know that the heart condition of the body of Christ right now is sick. Can I get an acknowledgement on that? The heart condition, of the saints, the Christians, the body of Christ right now is sick. Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Your version in Matthew 24 might say, because wickedness increases, most people's love will grow cold and and, and he's talking about the last days before he comes back in those days wickedness will be so whacked out that people are just going to grow faint they'll lose their love we have waited we have waited we have waited and all we see is the world getting worse and there are Christians left and right throwing in the towel how many of you have witnessed it how many of you have considered throwing in the towel you don't have to raise your hand but most of us It's easy to lose hope. But then you look at the rest of Proverbs 13, verse 12. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Can I get a whoop on that? I mean, come on, Right? And a lot of us have heard that scripture, maybe even used it to encourage ourselves or encourage someone that's going through the difficulties that this world brings along, right? But this verse is an eschatological encouragement. Look what it says. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. What? That's talking about eternity. That's telling us not to let the promise of his return become trite. Are you with me? And if ever there's a season in history to be encouraged at the thought of Jesus returning, it's now because the signs are starting to bottleneck. I mean, they really are. They're starting to bottleneck. You guys get the idea of what that means when something bottlenecks. All these things are starting to happen and coming into one space. So many things happening that make Jesus' return undeniable and probable to happen in our generation. Is that exciting? Can I get some sort of hoop? Okay, so let's switch gears and let's talk about signs. You guys wanna talk about signs? There's a lot of signs, some of which we will specifically look at, some of which we will not have time to look at. But listen to me, before you consider any signs, there is what I'm going to call A super sign, a sign that gives validity to all other signs. Unless you understand the super sign, you can't really recognize the smaller signs. You can't give them eschatological attention. Okay? For example, Jesus in Matthew 24, quoted from it a second ago. It's one of the uh, primary uh, scriptures that people use to try to interpret the end times. Jesus does most of the talking. And in that, verse 6, he says, you will be hearing him. Wars. You'll be hearing rumors of wars. Nations will rise up against nations. Kingdoms against kingdoms. And in various places, there's going to be famines. And there's going to be earthquakes. Well, the reality is, is that those things have been happening for 2,000 years. Haven't they? For 2,000 years, we've seen that stuff. So like in, in what was it, 1906. When the great San Francisco earthquake happens and destroys 80% of the city, don't you think people were like, Jesus is coming back, baby. There's earthquakes. Not yet. Not yet. But what about a few years later when World War One breaks out? Oh, this is it. This is a big one. This is bad. Jesus is coming back. Wars. Rumors of wars. Nope. Or a few years later, a few years later, whenever the Great Depression hits, and it's terrible. The nation, our nation, hasn't seen anything like it. It didn't just affect our nation, it affected everybody. The World War II, uh, the world wars did too. And then you think about World War II, a few years later after that. You know people were thinking, Jesus is coming back. You can't have that level of war in the world that close together and not think Jesus is on his way back. And you know what? In the late 30s, World War II, you could think, hmm, maybe, but wait, nope. As world-shaking as those events were, you can't really consider them until things surrounding the super sign come into motion, okay? Would you like to know what the super sign is? How many want to know what the super sign is? Raise your hand if you want to know what the super sign is. The super sign is all things Israel. All things Israel. And even in that statement, there are super signs within that super sign. Things that you can't even say this is the end time until this happens. You have to consider this before you even can consider that. And it's gonna take me two weeks just to give a broad understanding of why Israel is the super sign of the return of Jesus. Okay, so this week and next week, we're going to look at how Israel is the super sign of Jesus' return. You guys excited about that? Okay, awesome. I want to start tonight by saying that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Did everybody know that? Like he is Jewish, but he's also the Jewish, he's Israel's Messiah. He's Jewish Messiah. His first coming, which has already happened, he came as a suffering servant, and his second coming, which has not happened yet, but he will come as a conquering king. Both of those are the fulfillment of a promise or a covenant that was made a very long time ago to a man named Abraham. Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Eventually changed his name to Abraham. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. In other words, step out of your comfort zone. Some of you need to hear that. Step out of your comfort zone and go to a land which God hadn't showed you yet, but he will if you'll just step out. That's for free. And I will make you, let's count these. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and i will bless those who bless you <laughs> and then he says no i'm going to curse anybody who curses you and then he ends it by saying and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed now that's considered a messianic prophecy that is talking about our jesus say my jesus say that's my king you all ever seen that you all okay anyway that's my jesus All the families of the earth will be blessed, meaning all the families of the earth will be provided with a way to be saved, to have eternal life through Jesus who would come from the family, the line, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David. Keep on going. Long history, right? That's what that is saying. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Abraham, and you can write this down. I want you to write this down. Abraham is the father of, Of Jesus' faith. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham's faith. You ever thought about that? I mean, you can't even talk Jesus unless you want to talk Abraham. Why? Because Abraham is the father of Jesus' faith. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham's faith. And you know what? Abraham is the father of our faith. We are blessed in Christ Jesus because God made a promise to Abraham that he fully intends to fulfill. He's going to keep that promise. Why? Because God's, when God starts something, he always has the end in mind. In fact, we're going to spend a whole week talking about that. I cannot wait for that sermon. When God starts something, he always has the end in mind. And this is true of your life. In case you were wondering, Philippians 1.6, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. How many of you needed to hear that tonight? Because it feels like God's done with me. Well, he's not. I love that at the front end of my faith, one of the first prophetic dreams God gave me was about the end. I love that. He could I could have dreamed about anything. and I did have some wild dreams. But there, at the front of my faith, he showed me things about the end. And my point is, is that everything that we stand on and stand for and stand with in Christ is rooted in a nation and a culture that God chose, set apart, to point and push things towards the day of the Lord. The end times. Everything about that nation and that culture God was using to point And push towards the end times, the day of the Lord. It would take me a month to unpack that statement, but I want to encourage you guys to take your Bible and just start reading. Read Daniel chapter nine, where it talks about the seventy weeks. Read in First and Second Thessalonians. Read in Matthew twenty-four. Read Joel two. Read the book of Revelations. See what God would show you. Here's the encouraging thing. You don't have to know it all for Him to show you something. God will speak to you whether you open the book or not, but how much more when you open the book. Amen? So begin studying this stuff on your own. Tonight, what I want to do is quickly show you one of the biggest examples of what I'm talking about, this nation and culture and everything pointing to and pushing towards the end that most Christians are not even... Aware of, turn to Leviticus 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. This is a season after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, and God's really trying to set up this nation and this culture. He's trying to get this nation ready to be what it, He called it to be, which is a light to all the other nations. He's going to use this nation, like I said. And its cultures and everything about it. To point all the other nations to Adonai. The one true and living God. Let's look at what he says right here in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 1 and 2. It says that the Lord spoke again to Moses. Speak to the sons of Israel. And say to them. The Lord's appointed times. Which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. And then he goes on, you can read the rest of it yourself, he goes on to lay out these appointed times. The word appointed times is that word moedim in the Hebrew, and it means fixed times. Yours actually might say feasts, or it might say gatherings. It really means fixed times. I want to show you these fixed times. It's interesting, I was reading, and I actually didn't know this, but I I was studying this week and I found this in in Genesis chapter 1, verse 24, where it says, God said, Let the um, lights be in the expanse of the heavens to separate day and night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. That word seasons is the same word. Moedim, appointed times, fixed times. And so we're going to get into a little bit of that, what some of the things that we're seeing in the skies have to do with what God is doing and how they correspond and correlate with some of the appointed times. And and you'll see um, as we go on. But he says, The Lord's appointed times that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. So there's these appointed times that the people are supposed to proclaim. And that means to call or to invite or to gather. And he says that they are holy convocations. That word convocations, I want you to write two things by that word in your Bible. It really means gather them all. But the most understood meaning of that word is a dress rehearsal. (laughs) So you need to make sure that everyone comes to these holy convocations, these holy dress rehearsals. Dress rehearsals for what? He goes on and he talks about um, the Sabbath. But then he lists out what we come to know as the seven feasts of Israel. There's seven feasts. Four are called the spring feasts, and they're feasts that Jesus has already fulfilled. And let me tell you what I mean. The first feast of Israel is Passover. Jesus died on Passover. And not just, not just died on Passover, the way that his death rolled out that day literally lined up with the traditional way that they would have sacrificed the lamb and treated the lamb well we know that makes sense because he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for example at the time where they took him off the cross and put him in the grave was the time of day when they would put the lamb in the oven to cook the second one is called the feast of unleavened bread which starts the day after Passover then unleavened bread a week of celebration but that third day was the third feast and it was called first fruits so you have Passover which pointed to Jesus' death the death of the lamb. Unleavened bread, which talked about the sinless man going into the grave. Unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it goes into the ground and dies, if it does do it, it will bear much fruit. The next day, the feast of first fruit, what happens? Jesus rose from the grave. First three feasts, Jesus literally accomplished the meaning of those feasts on the day of That they happen. So what you can see is, and scholars say it this way, the seven feasts are a prophetic timeline of God's redemptive plan. You see that? The seven feasts that God ordained, these appointed times, these rehearsals will point ahead to God's redemptive plan. And so Jesus comes in and starts fulfilling these things on the days that these feasts happen. And then you think, well, that's just a coincidence. Really? Because 50 days later, there was another feast. They called it the Feast of Weeks, or they would call it Pentecost, because it was 50 days after Passover. And you will never believe what happens on that day. this random 50 days. The Holy Spirit comes down. And you think, oh yeah, that's right. The Holy Spirit came down. Then Pentecostals, they labeled it Pentecost. No. <laughs> it had been called Pentecost before, because that's the same day, 50 days from when Israel came out of Egypt, 50 days after they came out, is when Moses came down the mountain with the law. Moses come down, I got the law, y'all. <laughs> and he's like, what are y'all doing? And they're worshiping the golden calf. And if you remember the story, 3,000 people died that day. Fast forward 50 days after Christ, Passover, Holy Spirit comes down. What happened that day? Anybody remember? 3,000 people got saved. You can't make that stuff up. Why? Because it was a fixed time, it was an appointed time. It points to what Jesus would do. Jesus has fulfilled. What's called the, the the spring feasts? Those happen in the, those happen every year. They have since Israel came out of Egypt. They happen every year. Those same feasts. Then they celebrated those things to remember coming out of Egypt. Now we can even look back and say it's not just about that. Jesus fulfilled those things. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We celebrate Easter, Easter, Easter. It's first fruits, y'all. You can call it that if you want. But it's first fruits. It's the day that Jesus came out of the grave. And it happened on the third feast of Israel. And we definitely celebrate having the Holy Spirit in our life. That happened on Pentecost. Now here's the deal. There's seven feasts, right? The remaining three feasts happen in the fall. And so there's this four-month time frame in in the course of a year between the spring feasts and the fall feasts. There's this is time of waiting for the fall feasts. And interestingly enough, there's, there's a couple of harvests. There's a harvest that they would um, anticipate at early spring. and they would give offerings actually on first fruits, and then they would give these offerings on Pentecost. But then the whole summer months, you know what they spent doing? Bringing in the harvest. They would give an offering on Pentecost on that day. That's why they would call it the um, the Feast of Weeks or or the Feast of Harvest. Sometimes they would call it. They'd offer up in hopes that they will have a good harvest that summer. And so the rest of that summer, the people of Israel was about bringing in the harvest. And when is that over? Well, right around the time of the fall feasts. So I want you to think about that. Try to picture this. The spring feasts, Jesus died, went in the grave, rose from the grave, sent his Holy Spirit into the believers and said, Go into all nations. And make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he said, now the labors are a few, but the harvest is plentiful. And what are we supposed to be doing right now as we wait for Jesus to come back? Bringing in the harvest. So so get that picture. Spring feast, summer months, and then the fall feasts. Can you guess what the first Fall feast is called. It's called the Feast of Trumpets. In Hebrew, it's Yom Teruah, which means the Day of Blowing or the Day of the Shofar. A shofar is a, a ram's horn trumpet. The first fall feast, the ones that that haven't happened yet, the ones that we are waiting in history to see fulfilled. Is the, the first one is the Feast of Trumpets. What do you guys think that's talking about? What do you think it's... What, if the Fall Feasts are what... I mean, the Spring Feasts are about what Jesus did. What on earth could the Fall Feasts be about? What He will do. You have the Feast of Trumpets. And you have the Day of Atonement, which is that day that the high priest would go in and make sacrifices. And then you have what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And I don't have time to, to break all those things down tonight. But these fall feasts, they point to Jesus' second coming, the return of Jesus, when he blows the trumpet. There's there are, I mean I have too many scriptures to even show you about the trumpet blowing. Now there are some that will say that on that day, on that feast, if he if he If he did those things on the spring feast on the day that they occurred, will Jesus come back on the feast of trumpets? Who knows? We'll talk about a little bit of that. But that's not the point. Can I show you something real quick as we wind this down and give you the whole point of this teaching series, which is not to have our head filled with eschatological facts? The feast of trumpets, which is the first feast that brings us into the end time season, is on the first of Tishri. Tishri is the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar. Trumpets is the only feast that doesn't begin on a full moon. It begins on a new moon. In other words, it, it, it doesn't start until the beginning of the month rather than the middle of the month. And it starts with uh, what you would call a sliver moon. And so you never knew exactly when that moon was going to show up right? Sometimes you're like, when is it going to come? And there's always a couple of days variance of when they thought it. And so what they would do is they would put watchers on the wall to watch because that was their job. I don't know how much they made. I don't know if it's a minimum wage situation or if it's salaried, but that was their job. They're watchers on the wall and they're watching the skies to see when that sliver moon, that new moon, that that, um, moon will show up. And when they spot it, They blow. Uh Come on, y'all, that was pretty good. (laughs) And there starts the fall feasts, and they get into, you know, all of that. Now, here's something interesting, especially since we're correlating that with um, Jesus' second coming. Some would say that's the day that the rapture would happen, or when um, Jesus catches His people, His bride, up with Him. We'll talk more about that. But we know that it is it is about the end times, that trumpet blowing. But here's the deal, and this is what I want to hone in on right here. The sixth month is called the month of Elul. Thirty days leading up to the seventh month of Tishri, which is when trumpets would start. And they call those thirty days Teshuvah. Everybody say Teshuvah. The 30 days leading up to the Feast of Trumpets are considered the darkest days of the year. Why? Well, because that feast is the only one that starts on a new moon rather than a full moon. So it's dark. You guys get that? So they're, they're a poetic nature. This is the darkest days of the year. But also, the Feast of Trumpets kicks off that season of the year where their people are awaiting the decision whether or not their sins will be atoned for, for the coming year. You guys have heard that, that the high priest goes in once a year to make atonement for the people of Israel, and they do that year after year after year. We don't have to do that anymore because our great high priest has gone in Jesus once and for all. Well, that season for them was this yearly cycle, and in the fall season was about repentance. So when that trumpet blows, whoa! Okay, but here's the thing: they're thinking about it beforehand, because the 30 days of Elul leading up to that new moon, the Feast of Trumpets, is called Teshuvah, and it literally means returning. It can also mean repentance. So that 30 days is a days is days of preparation. Now get this, you guys. And some of you may not know enough about the word, and I may not have done a great job breaking it down tonight, but we know that Jesus is coming back. We know that the days leading up to his return will be some of the darkest days in history. Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, Daniel tells us. Many of the prophets speak it one way or the other. Some of the darkest days in history the time just before Jesus returns but he has put watchers on the wall. We won't know the exact day or hour just like they don't know is it gonna be this day or this day. We don't know. It's just it's a lunar calendar and it's, it's gonna be one of these couple of days. That's why he said you don't know the day or the hour but you can know the season and we'll talk a lot more about that. But here's what we do know. The days leading up to that, it's getting close. We're towards the end. In fact, the last two days of Elul, they would literally just kind of stop everything and they would go through this rhetoric and rote of repentance, prayers, and reading in preparation for that trumpet to blow. So the whole month, Teshuvah, the idea of returning, the last two days, I forget the name of what they would call that, but it is about intense, personal, repentant prayer and reflection. And then they await that trumpet. And interestingly enough, there's 10 days between trumpets and and the day of atonement, which is the day that they would be judged. 10 days, and they called that the 10 days of awe because they were literally waiting. Will I be okay for the next year? And if they were, then they celebrate. Then five days after that is tabernacles, which pointed to we're good for the next year and we celebrate because of what God has done. My point is this. This series is not about figuring out this mystery because we can't do it. Jesus said, you can't do it. He said, but you can keep watch. You can watch. You can see. You can discern the times. You can discern what's going on. There are plenty of things to see. One of the super signs, or the super sign, is things about Israel. You have to look at this and you have to say, what is God speaking to me based upon even the feasts? Jesus has done something and he will do something. In the meantime, what am I going to do? I'm going to lead people to Christ. When when Jesus comes back, I don't want anybody to be left behind. I know that feeling. I had it in a dream. And it put the fear of God in me. I'm going to learn this book so I can watch. I'm going to be a watcher on the wall. What are you going to do? Has this become dull and meaningless because we talked about it so much? Or can we rekindle a hope and a knowledge that Jesus is coming and rekindle that knowledge enough to the point where we will experience a season of Teshuvah first, returning, repenting, knowing that that trumpet will blow and when it does, we will be taken up to meet our Heavenly Father. We will be able to get on a train if our name is on the list is your name written in the Lamb's book of life is your name on that list have you said I surrender all I surrender my heart to Jesus if you haven't why not Why would you, if you understand and you know it's true or halfway true you just have some sort of understanding like I did I don't know much about all that but I'm miserable and he sounds like he's got the answer sometimes that's, an, that's all it takes I don't need to know everything I just need to know where I'm at where are you are you ready For the trumpet? Are you ready for those days? You don't have to have all, when's the order, how will it happen? That doesn't matter. What matters is it will happen. Are you in a season? Are we in a season of Teshuvah? It's time to return. It's time for the earth to return. It's time for us to turn from our our ways that are not glorifying to God and turn to Him and let Him do what He is best at. That's forgiving our sins, wiping us clean, giving us a new start, finishing what He started in us. You were created for Him to be with Him. And He's provided the way for that to happen and that is His Son shedding His blood on the cross, going to the grave but experiencing victory over death in the grave and being filled with his Holy Spirit by saying I want you I need you I take you I receive you letting the Holy Spirit come in seal seal that in you and empower you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received long before the foundations of the earth long before you actually heard about him he's been calling